0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, The Triumph of Gentleness and Peace. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 21, verses one to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I don't know what you think about Gentleness, I mean many people have a wonderful view of it. You know, if your grandpa was a gentle man, no doubt you loved that. If your teacher in school was gentle, that was good. If your police officer who stops you for speeding or the boss who's trying to teach you a new skill that you need to learn to succeed in your job or you know, your dentist, your doctor, even your mechanic who's trying to explain how your car works and what's wrong with it, I I think you get it. We love gentle people, not always. When we're cheering for our favorite sports team, be it, you know, football, hockey, rugby, we don't want our lads to be gentle. We want them to be aggressive. We don't want them to worry how the other team feels if the lads humiliate them. Don't be gentle, boys. The same is true for members of the military. You know, when the battle is about to be enjoined, no one quotes Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. You know, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to the other, tender-hearted, so forth. You know, indeed, the day of battle is not a day of gentleness. It's a day when we value aggression. I suppose on the day of battle, we could quote, you know, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 8, there's a time for love and there's a time for hate. There's a time for war and a time for peace. Now, I don't want to get into the morality of war here. I mean, the only point I'm trying to make is that on the day of battle, one wants aggressive people, rough fighters, that, you know, will not back down in the day of struggle. And I say all of that because although we've become quite accustomed to reading the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know, I fear that sometimes we become far too accustomed to the story, that we lose a sense of shock at how seemingly incongruent the entire thing is. How does a Messiah who's pictured as the First Testament great king and conqueror, enter into the city of Jerusalem with gentleness. Indeed, anyone who wants to conquer a city and who employs love and gentleness and peace as his means of doing that is going to meet a sorry end. And of course, there are those who argue exactly that. Jesus attempted to take the throne as Messiah through the force of love and gentleness and on the basis of peace, but all he got for his trouble was a cruel cross. But that is, in one sense, exactly what happened. The greatest battle ever won was won by a gentle Savior. Let's retrace Jesus' steps before arriving in Jerusalem. Matthew in his Gospel, unlike John, has not recorded any previous visit by Jesus into Jerusalem, but John tells us that he had been there at least twice before. But for Matthew, that's not a part of the events that he recounts, because he wants us to see this trip to Jerusalem as the climax to the story. Matthew doesn't deny that Jesus had been there before, but he only tells us this story so that we'll concentrate on how important this encounter is. Matthew has told us that Jesus had left Perea, and from there he had journeyed across the Jordan, and he had come to Jericho. There he'd healed two blind men, and then, having told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, and there he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and that he's going to be condemned to death, and he's going to be flogged and finally crucified. But he also told them he would rise from the dead, and yet, this doesn't seem to have penetrated into their understanding. I mean, they thought can't mean that literally. No, no. He is going to Jerusalem to be enthroned as Messiah. Then the kingdom of heaven is going to appear. Then the nations are going to bow to him. He's going to Jerusalem to conquer. So we come to Matthew 21, 1 to 2. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So it's Sunday. Bethpage, if you will, is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's located on the other side of the Kidron Valley, and so to go to Jerusalem from Bethpage meant you'd follow a steep trail down a ravine, then come up on the other side. And I mention this detail so that we can understand that from the direction in which Jesus approached the city, He would follow a path which would have been very visible to anyone in the city of Jerusalem. He wasn't hiding his entrance. He was going as public as possible. Now, here's the reality. Jesus had walked up a long and steep journey through the desert, ascending quite steeply all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. That's a very arduous one-day journey. You know, you'd have to be in excellent physical condition to do that. And so since he's done that, we now have to imagine that it would have been very little effort at all for him to walk the short distance from Bethpage to Jerusalem. I mean to say he doesn't need a donkey. It's not that he's tired, that he can't walk those, you know, three kilometers, but he insists on it. You know, two of his disciples are required to go into the village of Bethpage to find a donkey in her colt, and he tells them where he tells them to untie it and bring the two animals to him. Now, many critics have pointed out that only Matthew mentions that there were two animals. You know, in Mark and Luke and in John, there's only one animal mentioned. Well then, why does Matthew mention two? Now, the critics say that Matthew made it up, and he did so because he didn't understand Zechariah 9 verse 9. That's a passage we're going to see quoted later. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That is when Zechariah mentions a donkey and then a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is not telling us there are two donkeys. He's, He's using a poetic form. It's known as parallelism. You say something not once, but you repeat it using different words. And so, for instance, you know, in Isaiah 53, verse 5, famous passage, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, that passage, as we can readily see, isn't speaking about two separate events of being pierced and then being crushed. No, no, it's parallelism. It says something once. That it repeats it using different words the second time to help us understand more greatly what's being said but say the critics matthew didn't understand that he misunderstood zechariah he thought there were two donkeys instead of one in that prophecy and so in his story of jesus matthew makes up an additional donkey and tries to make the story of jesus entry into jerusalem fit with a prophecy of zechariah now I'm going to say this to the critics that's nonsense. Matthew was a Levite. He was trained in the study of the First Testament Scripture. He, of all people, knew how to read and how to interpret his Bible. But then, why does he mention two animals instead of one? Well, first, He mentions them because there were two animals. And second, he does it to illustrate that the colt was so young that it couldn't be ridden alone without its mother beside it to calm the animal down. Matthew points this out so that we can see how humble was the animal that Jesus chose to ride. Now, the two disciples find the colt just as Jesus said they would, they untie it and its mother as well, and they bring the two animals to Jesus. So how did Jesus know where the two animals would be? Well, it is possible that he knew it because of his divine nature, because he knows all things. But in terms of this story, I think it more likely that Jesus made deliberate arrangements beforehand. He was carefully planning his entrance into Jerusalem. He was creating a mass event. He wasn't going to simply walk into Jerusalem You know, everyone in Israel believed that at some time in the future, during a Passover, the Messiah would arrive. And every year when Passover came to an end, faithful Jews would say to each other, next year in Jerusalem. See, they didn't mean see you next year. They meant maybe next year the Messiah will come. And I paint that picture to show that Israel was waiting for a Messiah at Passover. At some Passover, God would send a greater Moses to deliver his people for all time. So we continue to read Matthew 21, verse three. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Again, I point out that we really can't know if that was supernaturally arranged or whether Jesus simply made preparations for this donkey, even as he later would make preparations as to where to eat the Passover meal. But what should catch our attention is the wording that the two disciples use. If someone says, where are you taking the donkeys? you're to say the Lord needs them and that would seem to indicate that the owner of the donkey knew the arrangements and these words were necessary for him to let the donkeys go but why not say Jesus needs them rather the Lord needs them indeed the word Lord can mean simply master but that word is often used to speak of the divine to speak of God it is I think too much to say that the disciples or the donkey's owner knew that Jesus was both fully human and divine. I don't think they knew that yet. But I think it must be true that Jesus wanted to communicate that these two donkeys were about to be used for divine service. It was that God himself had requested them. What was about to happen was God's announcement of who Jesus was and what this moment was all about.
0: Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions around the dinner table or at night with the kids perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full color, fun and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible.
1: What Jesus arranged on Palm Sunday was a very dangerous event. I mean, given the Messianic enthusiasm in the nation, And given that during Passover, the Romans would move their military from their base in Caesarea, which was by the Mediterranean Sea, and they'd move all the way to Jerusalem, it tells us that the Romans always stood ready, knowing that Passover was a time that was seething with rebellion, and they were ready to move the military. Now, those of you who know your history, you're going to remember under General Pompey, 64 B.C., He gained mastery over the Jews by simply wrecking havoc in Jerusalem, killing many and damaging the temple. And then after Jesus in AD 70, 35 years later, the Romans would utterly destroy both Jerusalem and the temple. I mean, no one should be any doubt that when the Romans came in force, they would be ready to use this force no matter how cruel. And so against that background, we see Jesus securing a donkey. Why does he do that? Well, Matthew 21, 4 and 5 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Now, to the most part, this is a quote, as we've seen, from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Now, the passage being quoted is a messianic passage. Zechariah chapter 9 begins with the words, The Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And then the passage speaks of God destroying the enemies of Israel, and here specifically of destroying the surrounding nations. And then after God's done that, he's going to encamp around his house, that means his temple. No oppressor is ever going to march against them again. And then comes Zechariah 9 verse 9. Zion, that's a reference to Jerusalem there to rejoice. Their king is coming, and that king is the long-awaited Messiah. And when he comes, he will bring salvation to Israel. And when he comes, he'll be mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey, not the actual adult, not the full-grown donkey itself, and that will be a sign of the humility of the Messiah. And then in the very next verse in Zechariah, we're promised that he, the one who comes on the donkey's colt, will speak peace to the nations, and that his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river, says the passage, which means the Euphrates River, from there in the center of the Middle East to the ends of the earth. And toward the ends of the chapter is the promise that the Lord will save his people Israel from all enemies. Again, put that in context to the time of Jesus. Jesus has been ministering to the most part in Galilee, but it would not have escaped the notice of the people of Jerusalem that great miracles were being reported. And at one time, Matthew has reported on what the people were saying. And I'm quoting here Matthew 1222 to 23. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? See, that's the messianic title. John reports another incident in John six fourteen and 15. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so on this one occasion, people wanted to draft him as the king. David's throne, greater than Moses. And so given the rumors and theories of Jesus that were everywhere, You know, what's his identity? And now he's coming to Passover, and he's not just coming. He's sitting on a donkey, on a foal. Jesus is clearly fulfilling an ancient prophecy. So, Matthew 21, 6-7. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Everything happened as Jesus said it would. The disciples find the donkey and the colt. And now Luke tells us that the owners actually said, why are you untying it? Now, that doesn't mean that the owner was objecting to taking it. He's simply checking, you know, do these people actually mean to bring it to Jesus? Are they legitimate at any rate? The disciples end up putting their cloaks on both animals, and we've got to assume that no one had a saddle. And so they had to improvise. You know, they placed their own cloaks on both animals. Our text says he sat on them as if he sat on both, meaning that he might have ridden for one for some time and then switched and perhaps the foal got tired, but it's also just as likely that the cloaks were on both, and the animals were side by side as Jesus continued to ride on the foal, and the mother was there to control the young one. So we have to imagine the scene. It's one of humility. There's no war horse here. You know, in ancient times, a great warrior that came in peace and in humility would ride on a donkey rather than a horse. But Jesus here, in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, rides on a foal. He's meek, he's humble, he's gentle, he's seeking peace for Jerusalem. But he's also appearing as Messiah. Verses 8 and 9, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, in a way, the crowd is following the example of the disciples. You know, the disciples have taken off their cloaks. Now the crowd's taking off their cloaks. So how does it work? Well, clearly, a large crowd of Galileans was coming to Jerusalem. John tells us that just before this ride, Jesus has been in Bethany, it's another village close to Jerusalem. There he spent time in the house of Lazarus, the man that he'd previously raised from the dead. And a large crowd says John was there. They wanted to see the man Jesus raised and learn his story. The crowd's so large at this house that the events are so large they're reported in Jerusalem to none other than the chief priests themselves. And so on this day, enthusiasm is being whipped up People are throwing down their cloaks, and once the cloaks are gone, they throw down palm branches that they've cut from palm trees. And I put it into our terms: they're giving him the red carpet treatment, and they're shouting. It has become a very large crowd. They shout three things. I mean, first, Hosanna to the Son of David. You know, many have suggested that the best way to translate the word Hosanna is save, or save now, or save we pray. And others have argued that it's simply a greeting. But I think it's best to say they're shouting, save us, son of David, save us, long hope for Messiah. Then they added, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. Clearly, they meant to indicate that this Messiah comes in the name of the Lord. And then finally, they shout, Hosanna in the highest, meaning that you who are in the highest, God, save us through this man. Matthew says, this happened from the crowd that was before him, as well as the crowd that went after him. So assume then that the crowd that's before him is the crowd that's come out of Jerusalem to see what's happening. And the crowd that's after him is the crowd that's from Galilee that's making pilgrimage. Now to verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now the people in Jerusalem aren't saying, you know, who is this man, we've never heard of him. Rather they're saying, what is his identity? And of course the crowds that were on the road are saying, this is the prophet, this is the one from Nazareth. They say a lot of other things as well, but let's get back to this matter of Jesus having orchestrated this kind of an event. He's done it with a purpose in mind. He he knows the enthusiasm is going to enrage the religious leaders. It's going to also frighten them because they expect a Roman backlash. He knows it's going to force the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to update their plans to murder him. They're going to have to do it more quickly than they had planned. They had planned to kill him on their timetable. When the crowds had all gone home and everything had quietened down, but now they find that Jesus is so whipping things up that things are out of control for them. More than anything else, Jesus has told the city that he's the Messiah, but that he comes in gentleness, meekness, riding on a donkey. He comes to offer them peace, not to wage war. And in a sense, of course, he did come to wage war, but not with people. He will fight with Satan as well as sin and death. But he will also come offering his open hand for men and women to be reconciled to God. So Palm Sunday is often seen as both a triumph and a tragedy. It's been pointed out that on Sunday, they cheered him on, and on Friday, they howled for his crucifixion. But in that, Jesus was already triumphing. He was showing how desperately we all long for a Savior, a Messiah, one who will rescue us from the slaveries that encompass all of us. But he also triumphs in that he shows that our real problem is sin, and it's hatred of God, and it's savage hatred of God. It's as if all humanity is shouting, crucify him. So Jesus comes on a donkey, and eventually he conquers on a cross. He doesn't kill his foes, rather he is killed to save his foes. You know, his is the story of the greatest conquest ever waged. He came in gentleness and in peace, and he conquered.
0: Thanks so much, John. You know, with what we know about how things turn out for Jesus in the days ahead, how do we understand Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as one of triumph?
1: Yeah, it is a triumph because he comes to announce that he is the long-expected king. And so he has triumphed in that way. He's triumphed in the sense that he has perfectly fulfilled the prophecy that was laid out by Zechariah. But he's also triumphed because the way in which he's entered into Jerusalem has forced his enemies, you know, into this perilous situation. They're going to have to take his life during Passover, and that's exactly what he had planned.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. you have young adults in your life, or perhaps you are a young adult, and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith, then be sure to check out In Doubt, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, In Doubt engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance and dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads, Relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out or pass along the information to the young adults in your life. Just visit indoubt.ca Download the InDoubt podcast wherever you typically listen or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information.